Let's open our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And we have a, a good study here in this chapter of actually uh, two things mostly, public worship and the Lord's Supper. And in this uh, 11th chapter of 1 Corinthians, to understand this chapter, we have to understand that uh, there, ma- there were many Greek customs in that day that do not really directly apply to us today. They were in existence in the Corinthian church. It was a new church, an early church, a young church that Paul was instructing in so many ways they had made so many errors that Paul was bringing correction. And Paul was dealing uh, with the Corinthian church in things that uh, did not exist in maybe other churches and certainly do not exist in our churches today. In fact, he points out verse 16. If you look at verse 16, well, then we'll come back to verse 1 for our study. But it says, if any man seem to be contentious, now look at this, we have no such custom, neither the churches of God. You see that? If any man seem to be contentious, we have no such custom, and he was dealing with the woman's head being covered or uncovered in the man and so on. And he says these things concerning the covering of the head and the hair and various things that he had pointed out. He says, we have no such custom, neither the churches of God. So these were things that were there that had to be dealt with because of tradition and because of what it did mean in some uh, areas, uh, maybe showing disrespect or dishonor. And we'll get into that. And in other instances, maybe showing a various meaning, uh, another meaning. So, let's uh, try to uh, begin to summarize the chapter and start with verse 1. And the first thing that we're going to find is a good example here in verse 1. Paul says, Be ye followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. Now, Paul was a follower of Christ. Paul had Christ as his example. Now, there's the perfect example. We sang in the song a little bit ago, trying to walk in the steps of the Savior. Uh, Peter tells us that Christ is our example. Uh, in 1 Peter chapter 5, well, let's, let me give you a couple more references. Let's look in Luke 5, first of all. In Luke 5, verse 11, the Bible says this, And when they had brought their ships to land, they fought, uh, forsook all and followed him followed him. They forsook all, they forsook their own way and what they were doing, their occupation, and followed him, that is Jesus. So they became followers of Christ. They used Jesus in that day as their perfect example. And then, uh, again, let me give you the reference I started to give you a moment ago. First Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 3. Uh, Peter says, The elders which are among you I exhort, who am also an elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that uh, shall be revealed. Feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint. Now, this is these are instructions concerning the elders or pastors and under-shepherds of the flock. And here's what they're to do. They're to take the oversight, not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind, neither as being lords over God's heritage, in other words, not dictators, but, look, but being in samples or examples to the flock. You see? So as far as the apostles were concerned, as far as uh, ministers today are concerned, as far as deacons, as far as 
pastors and teachers. They are to be. They are to be examples. Examples to the flock. And we ought to remember that Christ is our perfect example. We are to follow His example. And then, if we're to be followed, we must follow the example of Christ or we're not worthy to be followed. And that doesn't mean we can follow as to perfection. We're not talking about that. We're talking about being a true disciple and a true follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that's why Paul says, Be ye followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. In other words, Paul could say to the Corinthians, You follow me, I'm your example even as I'm an example of following Christ. Now, if Paul had not been a follower of Christ, he would not be worthy to be followed, would he? So Paul had Christ as an example, and Paul became an example, and all Christians should be an example. Every one of us ought to be an example. Look in Matthew chapter 5. Let me read this verse for you. At verse 16, it says this, Let your light so shine before men, let your light so shine before men, that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. So we're to be an example. We're to be shining lights. Paul says in another place to the Philippians, uh, do all things without murmurings and disputings in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation among whom ye shine as lights in the world. So the Christian is to be an example. And now I want us to begin uh, with verse 2 and we'll find some more things. Verses 2 and 3. He says, Now I praise you, brethren, that ye remember me in all things, and keep the ordinances as I delivered them to you. He's beginning to show and reveal orderly worship, public worship, and as it ought to be. And he says that you keep the ordinances as I've delivered them to you. And on down, he refers to the Lord's Supper. In verse 23, For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you. You see that? He delivered the Lord's Supper. The ordinance, the ordinance of the Lord's Supper was to be kept just as he delivered. And these other things may even indicate traditions. If you have, if you're back in verse 2 now, and I may be carrying you a little fast, but I have to to get through the chapter. But if you look at verse 2, ordinances... If you have a marginal reference, it'll say traditions. So there were many traditions in the Christian church in that day that could be upheld by the word, and those that could be ought to be observed. And those that cannot be upheld by the word should not, not be observed and not be so cantankerous about. And you know, we find that today there are many churches that follow tradition completely and do not follow God's word, do not have a basis for those traditions in God's word. And Paul is only wanting them to follow so far as there is proof in the Word of God that that's the way it ought to be. Now then, we have certain traditions in our own churches, but I believe that most of them, and if we'll examine them very closely, we'll find that they're based upon scriptural truth, upon Bible truth. And if they were not, we ought to discard them. We ought to get rid of them. And yet there are other churches that live on, that live by and follow tradition as their church has Brought it, brought it down to them of this day and age that have absolutely no basis, no scriptural warrant for such uh, actions and such practices that they practice. And, and that's wrong. If it doesn't have a Bible uh, foundation and basis, it should not be followed. Verse 3, quickly. It says, But I would have you to know that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of, of the woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God. Now, he's pointing out, first of all, that the head of Christ is God. The head of, of uh, every man is Christ. 
and that the head of every woman is the man. And so here's a kind of a, a standard and a uh, accepted authority, honor, and respect that's due. In other words, we owe due respect to Christ. Christ owed due respect to God. The woman owes due respect to man because God has made it that way. And it's not that God does not uh, put a woman in a place of respect and honor. It's that this is the way nature and creation has taught us to be. And, of course, we know in this sense that it's still true. Maybe some of the customs do not apply that apply to the Corinthian church. But the same due respect is still there. And that's what we have to recognize because it has more to do with that than it does with the custom that Paul will, will uh, discuss here concerning the covering of the head and etc. But we certainly are to have due respect. Just as we as men have due respect to Christ as, as our head uh, and Christ has due submission to God the Father as his head, and he does, then the woman is to uh, have due respect to the man. The head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God. So he goes on to use then, when he makes that statement, some things that will show us uh, how we ought to act in public worship. Now then, uh, all are under authority, both man and woman, and even Christ submits to the authority of the Father voluntarily, even though he's equal with God. If you'll remember, uh, in the 17th of John, Jesus in his great high priestly prayer says, Father, glorify thy Son, that thy Son may also glorify thee. He asked that God would glorify him, but he says, in order that I may glorify you. So he's showing the respect to the Father that, uh, of course, it's a submissive and a willing authority to the Father that Jesus is showing there. We know that Christ is the one authority over every man. Matthew chapter 28 verse 18 tells us, All authority is given unto me. The man is in authority over the woman. Ephesians 5, let me read it to you. Verse 22, it says, Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. He says, For, uh, he says, For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let wives be to their own husbands in everything. And we find that this is taught in the Bible, and yet we know some people that argue against it today, but this is the way God has made it. And we're not talking about uh, dictatorship. We're talking about the order of respect and authority that God has made and set up, and there must be some order in nature and some order in society and some order in spiritual things. And he has put all of them in proper order, and if we'll follow them, we won't have any problems. And it's, uh, it, I won't turn, well, maybe I could turn back quickly in uh, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, to show you that that does not mean that the husband or the man is to be the dictator over the woman, because if he has the love for the woman that Christ has for the church, he will certainly show all respect and due respect and, and great love and great care for the woman. It says in Ephesians 5.25, Husbands, love your wives. Now look, to this extent, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. So if a husband loves his wife in that way, we will find definitely 
that there will be no disrespect, but there will be all due honor given to the wife. And so you don't have any problem of dictatorship or the husband lording it over his spouse. That's not the purpose. And God didn't put it in here, in his word, for that purpose. He wanted us to see a due uh, and right order that he has set up in uh, the home and in the church, in the family, and in the church, and in spiritual matters. Now then, he shows in the Corinthian church how that some of these things uh, are observed, and some disrespect is shown by the way some of them were acting, and we'll see that in just a moment. So the man is in authority over the woman. God is the source of all authority. He gave Christ the administrative authority because Jesus said, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth, Matthew twenty-eight eighteen. It was given to him to do what he should do in carrying out the Great Commission. So he acts as if and, and admits that the source of his authority is the Father. Not that he was not equal with the Father, but this was his part to be in authority administrative authority and power. And evidently there were some that were worshiping God uh, with their hats on, showing disrespect, even men. Look at this. Every man praying, verse 4, or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonoreth his head. You wouldn't come into the worship service and have, have your hat on, and, and that would not be showing respect to Christ. You'd be dishonoring Christ, who is your head. It would not show proper respect for, for Christ. It goes on to say in verse 5, But every woman that prayeth or prophesieth with her head uncovered, and when it says every woman that prayeth or prophesieth, it's speaking here about those that had special privileges in uh, the days of the apostles and had a special message to give. Uh, not the prominent thing for women to rise up and to speak up in the church, but in their exceptional gifts that were given to them, that this would not be right for them to dishonor their head, having their head uncovered, or dishonor uh, their husband by having their head uncovered. And so you have two thoughts here. The fact whether or not women should pray or prophesy in the church, that is, get up and speak publicly. And as I said, this was because of the special gifts and privileges of that day that uh, you would find some especially endowed with a spiritual gift for that purpose. But that was not the general rule of practice that they would do so. Now then, but notice uh, concerning the respect that we find here. It says, uh, she dishonoreth her head, for that is even all one as if she were shaven. That's just like she had shaven her head. For if the woman be not covered, let her also be shorn. But if it be a shame for a woman to be shorn or shaven, let her be covered. Certainly it was not right for them to shave off all their hair. We find that the nuns do that today, don't they? The nuns, they shave off all their hair and they cover their head up. But it's, it's not scriptural for a woman to do that in the first place. For a woman to be uncovered was, a, was an immoral sign in those days. The custom then in Corinth that existed that Paul was dealing with and it, it would be that she was appearing in public as an harlot, really. She was dishonoring her head or she was dishonoring her husband by the way she appeared in public. Now then, uh, we know that that's not much uh, seen today because we don't have those same practices. But it says in verse 7, For a man indeed ought not to cover his head for as much as he is the image and glory of God. But the woman is the glory of the man. 
So a man ought not to cover his head. He ought not to go in the worship service with his hat on, with his head covered, because he's the image and glory of God. And he can look up to God. And the woman uh, is the glory of man. And therefore, she she was to, to cover her head, as far as the custom was concerned, that she might show submission and honor to the man. For the man is not of the woman, but the woman of the man. Neither was the man created for the woman, but the woman for the man. So the order of creation teaches us, what the order of creation uh, teaches us is who comes first. It just teaches us who is the first. Man is the first. It says man is not of the woman, but the woman of the man. God made Adam, then he made the woman. Neither was the man created for the woman, but the woman was created for the man, is what he's saying here. It says, for this cause ought the woman to have power uh, on her head. That is, a power or covering on her head. In other words, she is showing due respect. It's a sign that she's under the power of her husband, that she's submitting to her husband. Ought the woman to have power on her head because, and it says, because of the angels. The angels show their respect to God, do they, they not? And certainly, men ought to show, uh, women ought to show their respect to man. Man shows his respect and honor to Christ. Christ shows his honor and respect to God the Father. So it's just a, a sense of order and honor and respect that is being taught. And this is taught by nature. We'll find that in verse 12 it says, well, let's read verse 11. Nevertheless, neither is the man without the woman, neither the woman without the man in the Lord. They are both together. They are both one in that sense. For as the woman is of the man, even so is the man also by the woman, but all things of God. Judge in yourselves. It is, is it comely that a woman pray unto God uncovered? Doth not even nature itself teach you that if a man have long hair, it is shame unto him? But if a woman have long hair, it is glory to her, for her hair is given her for a covering. So it's showing you here that man is to, of course, respect Christ, and the woman is to respect the man. And the, the fact that nature teaches us the lesson shows us uh, the re- due respect uh, of husband and wife together before Christ. And so you can see that it that nature teaches us this very same thing. Common sense teaches us this. Doth not even nature itself teach you that if a man have long hair, it is a shame unto him? But if a woman have long hair, it is glory to her, for her hair is given her for a covering. If you have a marginal reference, it, it says veil. It kind of gives her a veil, a sense of appearance of a covering. Now then, these things were greatly exaggerated in uh, in Paul's day. And do you know, beloved, now you may not like me for what I'm about to say, but I think it's greatly exaggerated today when people go to the extreme. Uh, what is long hair for a man? What is short hair for a woman? When does it cease to be a sufficient honor and a covering for a woman? Well, I guess when she'd shave it all off, it would then appears that she's uh, certainly losing all of her covering. Uh, and I don't think that's proper. And if a man were to let his grow to the to the extent that you couldn't distinguish between the man and the woman, that would be certainly a dishonor for him to have it that long. But on the other hand, what is long for a man and what is short for a woman? And both of these things need to be taken into consideration. And if you look back in certain periods of time in history, you'll find that certain men that were very greatly respected, and some most greatly respected preachers had beards, had long long hair. I'm not talking about hair that's down below their shoulders or anything, but they had a full head of hair, very full and very 
wavy and and uh, some of them would have been accused of being hippies in our day. You look at pictures, have you ever seen pictures of Charles Spurgeon, C.H. Spurgeon? But uh, uh, actually, he, it was very well groomed and very well kept and it was a full head of hair and he, uh, at times he would uh, wear a beard or mustache or whatever. And men uh, kept themselves and certainly not to the extent of this of not being able to to distinguish them from the opposite sex. But on the other hand, you and I are not to judge in these matters. And I think that we have been uh, too quick in this day and hour, especially in fundamental Baptists, to condemn a person. And we find a lot of the preachers now uh, that are letting the hair be a little longer than used to be the custom a few years back. Certainly, we know that uh, they don't do it to uh, to uh, dishonor Christ. We know that they do it because it's becoming more accustomed to have a little bit more full head of hair than than we used to in days gone by. But anyway, that's uh, a matter of conviction more than <coughs> and a man's own individual decision rather than of scriptural uh, condemnation. So what we're reading about here doesn't condemn a man for having longer hair than the next fellow. Some people like a, a burr haircut. Well, I don't like it that way. I like to at least be able to comb it. And some fellows want more to comb than I have. Well, that's their business. I'm not going to condemn them for it. So we get off into splitting hairs over this situation. We don't think we ought to do that. And uh, besides, when we read verse 16, it will remove all doubt that it's not something to be argued about. Uh, Paul tells us we're not to argue about it and not to uh, try to condemn the other fellow about it. Look at this verse. But if any man seem to be contentious, we have no such custom, neither the churches of God. And I believe that's the key to understanding all of this, is to realize that there are some things more important than uh, these particulars and these customs that were uh, then, since some of those customs today do not have the same meaning at all. There's no disrespect for a woman to appear in public worship with her head uncovered, without a hat, without a hat on or a veil on. She could come in. Now, you know, it used to be a woman had to come in church with a veil. She'd come into church with a hat. And, and they just didn't come otherwise. But uh, here, the hair is the item that Paul is uh, talking about. So uh, you have both the veil by nature or a veil or a hat or a covering. Uh, which is uh, not by nature, but what women choose to cover their heads with. But anyway, Paul says that there's, there's no such custom uh, in the churches of God. So we don't have to worry about it that much. He was teaching them a lesson of respect. What was? First of all, that the woman showed due respect to her husband, not only at home, but in public worship. That the man showed due respect to Christ in public worship. That... Uh, even it, it, to the extent as Christ showed respect to the Father. And that's the what, the whole lesson that we're teaching there. I want us to look at verse 17. And we'll pick up concerning the Lord's Supper, 17 and 18. And if we don't get all of this, it might well be that it would be uh, the best for us because uh, we do need to teach the remainder of it or at least preach from it uh, next Sunday evening concerning... Uh, at least before we take the Lord's Supper together next Sunday. So I want you to look at verse 17. Now in this that I declare unto you, I praise you not, that you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For first of all, when you come together in the church, I hear that there be divisions 
among you, and I partly believe it. Now, Paul is saying here that in your coming together in the church, <clears throat> that I'm not going to praise you from what I've, from what I understand takes place that you, that there's divisions among you. I can't praise you for the way you're assembling together because there's schisms, it says in the marginal reference, the, the, uh, Greek concerning the divisions is schisms. In other words, there's separations. There's, uh, schisms or divisions among you in the church. And he says, I, I partly believe it. And he said, I'm not going to praise you in this. I want you to notice something about verse 18, that it says, when you come together in the church. And this is the local church that he's speaking about. You know, we have today so many people that say, yes, I believe in the Lord's church. They believe in some kind of a universal church that does not, not assemble. But Paul was speaking to the church of God, which was at Corinth. And he says, when you come together in the church, I hear that you're divided. I hear there's divisions among you. And he says, I'm not going to praise you in this. And uh, what I wanted to point out is that a lot of people put down today the local church. That's the only thing that we know anything about that has any function, any organization, any missionary endeavor. Uh, that's the only thing we know anything about that has any purpose for existing in a community. So it can carry on the Lord's work in a locality, in a given place. And so I do believe that the Bible teaches the local church, and we ought to stand behind it. And uh, you find a lot of people that don't want to... What should I say? Don't want to obligate themselves to the duties and responsibilities of a local church. If you if they, you ask them if they're a Christian, yes, I'm a Christian. Well, what church do you go to? What church do you belong to? Well, I don't go to any because I don't believe in, in churches. I believe in the Lord's church. Have you ever heard that argument? I'm just a member of the Lord's church. Well, where does that church function and how does it function if it doesn't have a local organization whereby it can go out and do the work of God? It has to be a local church. The church of God at Jerusalem, the church of God which was at Corinth, the church at Ephesus, the church, you get over in the book of Revelation, and the seven churches which were in Asia were definite, local, individual congregation in various places. And when people put down the local church to me, it rubs me the wrong way. I believe that that's where people ought to assemble together, and that's where the Lord's work, the nucleus of it, that's where it's carried out. We have to have that in order to carry out the Lord's work. And Paul was telling them here, the reason he didn't praise them was because that when they did come together, and really for the purpose of public worship, and then not only that, including the Lord's Supper, especially that he'll uh, expound in just a moment, that they came with divisions among them. Now he's going to tell some things in, in verse 19, I want you to notice. <clears throat> there should be unity in the church. There sh should not be divisions. It says in verse 19, For there must be also heresies. If you have a marginal reference there, it says sex. S-E-C-T-S. We've heard about religious cults or sex. Well, here they are. And it says there must be heresies among you. In other words, people of different factions. Uh, that, In other words, they might have various groups that that believed different things all together. They were not of the common faith. There were, there were uh, heresies. There was false doctrines, false teachings that existed. That they, may, that they which are approved may be made manifest among you. When you come together, therefore, into one place, this is not to eat the Lord's Supper. In other words, if you look at that, he says you cannot eat it. 
You have a marginal reference there. You cannot eat the Lord's Supper. Under these circumstances, you're not in any condition to eat the Lord's Supper. He says, we're going to have to deal with these problems before you're ready to eat the Lord's Supper. What were the problems? When they came together with heresies among them, or false teachings among them, or factions among them, they were not prepared to take the Lord's Supper. If that was true concerning a local church, how much more is it true when you have people of various rival denominations coming together and saying, we're coming together, we're all coming together to take the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is a local church ordinance, and that's where it belongs. And if you get people from all kinds of denominations that believe things that are contrary to the common faith of that local congregation, then they're not to take the Lord's Supper. You find today uh, people taking the Lord's Supper by remote control on television. You know, every Easter you'll see these preachers go over to the Holy Land. And why it's any better over there, I can't understand. Because that wasn't, it wasn't, Jesus didn't uh, set up the standard that it had to be taken into Jer- in Jerusalem. He set up the practice that it should be taken when the disciples were assembled together. He says, this is my a body which is broken for you. This is my blood of the New Testament, the New Covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. And he says, as often as you do this, you do show or proclaim my death till I come again. And it, and here, Paul definitely shows that this uh, ordinance of the Lord's Supper was a New Testament local church ordinance. So if that be the case, how can these people take it by remote control, take it over television? You see some of these preachers, they go over to Holy Land, and on television, their program will come on. They'll say, now, we're going to take the Lord's Supper with you. We're over here in the Holy Land, and you get your uh, bread, and you get your cup. And, and when we take it, you take it. And we're having a, a local uh, congregation, or we're, having, we're taking the Lord's Supper together. That is absolutely unscriptural, beloved. And when people do that, they're not obeying the Word of God. He says, when you come together in the church. That's worse to be taken. You look at verse 18. When you come together in the church, that's where the Lord's Supper is to be taken. You can't take it being scattered all over the nation and all over the world. And because uh, someone happens to say, well, I see that fellow over there in Jerusalem and that preacher with all his group that's gathered around him taking it, so I'll just get my cup and my bread and I'll take it here. I think that is dishonoring the Word of God it is contrary to the, to the teachings of the Word of God. It is not scriptural and it is not spiritual. Some people say, well, I got such a blessing out of that. Well, you know, you can feel differently about a lot of things you do that doesn't mean that it's of God. People can feel good about bad things sometimes. Just because it feels right or you think it's, it brings a thrill to you doesn't mean that it's of God. Now then, some things of God do bring a great joy. We know that. But some things of the devil bring a great deal of pleasure too. And some things that are wrong, you can uh, make yourself believe that everything is okay. Or someone else can make you believe that it's all right. To the extent that you uh, are led astray and you say, well, I sure enjoyed that. Well, fine and dandy. But it may have been not something that you needed to be so happy about enjoying. It may have been a falsehood. It may have been evil. It may have been unscriptural. It may have not been the thing of God. And yet we find people do that, don't we? So, I don't believe the Bible teaches that. And I, don't, I think it's wrong for preachers to encourage such a thing. Because if it's a local church ordinance, it belongs in the local church. It doesn't belong out there. And I don't see what m- makes it any more fantastic about taking the Lord's Supper over in Jerusalem as it does over 
in your local church. That doesn't make you any closer to God. And just because they went over there to take it doesn't make them any closer to God. You can be just as close to God in darkest Africa if the church is assembled together and they're assembled together for that purpose and doing it in the way that the Lord left it to be observed. They can be just as close to God as they can in the city of Jerusalem. In fact, did you know that the Bible calls that city of Jerusalem spiritually what? Sodom. As far as the spiritual condition of that city, he says it's spiritually called Sodom. You look in the book of Revelation, you'll find that to be the case. Now then we know that it's the place historically where Jesus spent much time and where things took place, transpired, where he was led out to be crucified, and it has many uh, historical references to the nation of Israel and so on. But we're talking about as far as it making any more spiritual. Well, here the local church. Now then, if the local church, if it had divisions among it, if, if there were divisions there and they were not prepared, they could not eat the Lord's Supper, verse 20, under, certain, under those conditions then how can we invite people that believe exactly the opposite thing into our church and into the congregation and say, well, they uh, belong to this denomination or that one, and we know they believe exactly the opposite thing that we believe concerning salvation. Many, you get into Baptist church, we believe that salvation is by grace through faith, and if we don't, we ought to study the Word and come to believe it. And then you get people in here that believe that salvation is by Baptism, that you're regenerated in the waters of baptism. You get folks in that say they believe that salvation is by works or by keeping the commandments, by observing the law. You've got factions and you've got divisions. And Paul says, with this existing, you are not prepared to take the Lord's Supper. And then he shows that the Lord's Supper is not a banquet. Look at verses 21 and 22. He says, for in eating, every one taketh before other his own supper, and one is hungry and another is drunken. What have ye not houses to eat and drink in? Or despise ye the church of God, and shame them that have not? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I praise you not. Paul says you can't come together and expect to uh, be observing the Lord's Supper, and, and it's, it's not a banquet. We know that they had their suppers sometimes beforehand, and they had an actual meal, and then they uh, took the Lord's Supper. But in these suppers that they had beforehand, they would have more or less a banquet feast, and in this, they would sometimes, the rich would leave the poor out of it. They would shame those that have not. And they'd come together, and there would be members in the church. They'd eat their own food, and they had plenty, and the others had nothing, the others hungry. He says, you've got houses to eat in when you eat your supper. He says, when you come together for the purpose of taking the Lord's Supper, don't worry about that other kind of food. Now, some preachers have gone to seed on this, too, and say, well, that means you're never supposed to eat in the church. Well, I don't think that's what it means either. It's talking about trying to do these things in a disorderly way or in a fashion that you would show disrespect to the poor or other folks that are there, and especially the drunkenness business is spoken of. We know that's not to be. There's nothing wrong with a church fellowship and get-together and having food together. But that's not the Lord's Supper, is it? But when you come together to take the Lord's Supper, this is a spiritual feast, and it's not a physical feast. It has to do with the spiritual element and not the physical element. And that's what Paul was trying to get them to see. And he says, when you come together and have these things that exist, then, he says, I praise you not. And so we're going to 
I'll tell you what let's do. Let's leave off with that verse because beginning with verse 23 would be a good place for our lesson for our for the actual taking of the Lord's Supper uh, in the service next Sunday evening. So let's leave off with that verse at this time. Let's stand together for a word of prayer.